This is the Improve Photography Podcast, episode number 173. This episode is brought to you by Improve Photography Plus. Get all of the downloadable products on Improve Photography, all in one subscription for $19.95 a month, and, sub- and support the podcast. In addition to dozens of hours of video content, you also get hundreds of Lightroom presets, sky replacements, ebooks, photography contracts, and of course, first con- first crack at our free workshops. In fact, we just announced one this week for Glacier National Park in Montana, September 14 to 17. So check that out if you're an Improved Photography Plus subscriber. Welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast, your weekly dose of photography knowledge. And today I am joined by a new voice on the podcast. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Do you want to kind of introduce yourself in a couple sentences and tell us about you? First of all, I've been listening to you for ever, and I'm so happy to be on the show. Uh, I've been a freelance photographer in Connecticut, so I haven't heard too much about from people in the Northeast. So uh, representing uh, New York and uh, Boston, we're right in the middle. And uh, Shout out a, to Connecticut. <laughs> yay. Have you ever been this way? Uh, no, I haven't, actually. I'm, I have se- severely neglected that whole area of the United States, and I need to correct it. Well, you know, we looked into Boise and your area there is, is really gorgeous. You, you have a beautiful town there, city. Well, thank you. So anyway, yeah, I'm a uh, freelance photographer. I've been doing this for 25 years and uh, I've been sh- kind of shooting all different things. And so I shoot for a business journal. I shoot for colleges, universities, banks. I shoot for a, a business journal, a weekly business journal. So that gets my name out there. And uh, then the other total different side is that I do hospitality. I've been uh, working with uh, Marriott and particularly one brand, the Renaissance brand, for maybe 15 years and travel all over the country and recently even out of the country to photograph uh, hotel interiors. And uh, so I'm having a ball. Well, great. That's uh, that's exciting. We're anxious to hear a little bit more about that hospitality photography um, in a little bit. But first, we have some questions from readers of Improved Photography. The first question is, what is the correct DPI to use when I save my photos? It seems like some places want 300 DPI, others want 150 DPI, and others 72 DPI. Um, I'll tackle this one because this is a really complicated subject and I spent like three work days once just trying to understand what this means because uh, it's very, uh, very complicated. Every time I've, I've explained this principle before, I have a certain subset of the listeners who say, no, there's no way that's right. And I, I promise you this is how it works. Uh, so, so the DPI setting never, ever ever makes any difference whatsoever if you're saving a a file that's going to be viewed on a computer you can enter 999 in the dpi setting Uh, you can enter one in the dpi setting it will not change anything at all if you're viewing that photo on a computer the reason is your computer has the number of pixels per inch fixed it's like 
actual an actual physical part of the screen you have little lights in there right tiny little lights everywhere on the screen those tiny pixels and you can enter 300 dpi and it's not like all of a sudden your screen morphs into having those lights closer together and if you enter one they just morph out uh, the that number is completely and totally arbitrary if you're viewing the the photo on a computer so if you want to test this if this seems too crazy to believe go into photoshop and try when you're saving out a photo uh, try enter 999 as your dpi setting and then save that same photo out uh, with the number being one and when you do that you'll see first of all that the file size is exactly the same uh, and then you'll view the photos and they look exactly the same. Um, and, and the reason is you can't change the, the actual size of the pixels and the screen or the density of those pixels. Where this does make a difference, however, is when we are putting this on uh, when we're actually printing the photo. Because let's say we're saving a file out. When we save it out in Photoshop or Lightroom and we're asking for that DPI, uh, let's say we make a photo just for easiness of numbers. It's a thousand pixels wide and 500 pixels uh, tall. Well, your printer needs to know what dimensions you want to print this out to. And uh, they want to know, do we should we push the pixels close together or far apart? Because unlike your computer screen, they can actually change that, right? Um, and so... Uh, there, it's it's taking the DPI number and multiplying it by the width and height to know if you're printing an 8x10 or 11x16 or whatever size A3 if you're in Europe, however you want to express this. Um, are, it's, it's determining the size from that. So uh, that's where it, it is important to set uh, the DPI setting uh, is when you're printing. On the screen, this just doesn't matter. Did I miss anything, Stephen? Does that make sense? Yeah, Jim, you know, when I'm um, looking at the question that he's asking is um, how I would save them. And I think that's a uh, what I would say is I would keep the resolution when I'm saving my images as high as they started off. I wouldn't fractal them up and I wouldn't make them smaller, but I would absolutely keep them, store them in a TIFF or Photoshop um, as a Photoshop document and not in a JPEG form. So when I start my image and do all my work on it, I, I, le I want to store those in the highest resolution possible and label them accordingly and then um, make sure that they're uh, not JPEG. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you want to save them in a, in a high resolution uh, if you aren't already saving the RAW. Um, so, so when you go on the computer from now on, do this just to, just to have a little fun. Uh, just have fun. When you're saving that file out, enter a random number. Type your birth year <laughs> in there. Uh, pick your favorite number. It's just not going to matter. The, for years and years and years, photographers were told that if you're saving the photo for the web, you have to make it 72 DPI because that used to be the, the dots per inch on a screen. <laughs> and it's just that, that advice comes from somebody who doesn't quite understand how this works. Um, uh, first of all, screens are much higher DPI than 72 now. Um, but, but even then it never made sense to do this because it, it never actually changed how 
how the file was viewed. All right. Rant, rant completed. All right. The next question <laughs> comes from Tim Gifford, who says, should I learn Photoshop? Uh, he just converted to Lightroom CC and he's got Photoshop now included for free and uh, his subscription. Um, and he's never used Photoshop and he's basically wondering what kind of common edits you would use in Photoshop. Uh, is it worth diving in and trying to learn it? What do you think, Stephen? Oh, my God. I mean, that's the that's where you start. What kind what kind of question is that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I know uh, it's a Lightroom world out there. I, I actually still use Bridge and have just converted over to Lightroom. So I know one of your callers, uh, one of your guests a couple weeks ago actually used Bridge as well. But for uh, somebody to start and learn both uh, Bridge or Lightroom, Bridge is actually, to me, a little easier to start with. But to convert images and, and, to, and, and to, you know, to not do that is just half, you're missing half the fun. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of edits would you use in, in Photoshop regularly? Like what's, what's the incentive? If you're already using Lightroom, you got your, uh, you know, you feel comfortable with, with Lightroom, what, what would you use in Photoshop? Oh yeah. Okay. Versus yeah. Well, that's it's getting to a point now where Photoshop itself is less and less needed. But I find that for doing um, architectural clone, moving things, layers, I just there's just certain things I, I'm maybe more comfortable. But I don't think I can do multiple layered uh, images, bringing uh, certain subjects up and down uh, in in Lightroom or Bridge. So I start with uh, retouching. It's to me, retouching is still an area where that, where I work on the face in, uh, in uh, Photoshop. So th those are two areas I would say. I, I almost always go into Photoshop and do a little bit extra. Yeah, so I, I guess for somebody who doesn't quite understand the difference between Lightroom and Photoshop and maybe asking this question, um, Anything, anytime you want to add something new to the picture, uh, you want to replace a sky, you want to add a sky to a photo that wasn't there, that has to be in Photoshop. Lightroom can't do that because it doesn't have layers. Anytime you want to uh, change the basic character of the photo, you want to remove an entire person from a photo that has to be done in Photoshop. That has to be that you've got to have layers to do that. Um, and so, you, I mean, you can you can remove a pimple in Lightroom. You you can remove a whole person, a whole building. You can totally change the character of a photo in Photoshop. If you're interested yeah, but, in, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm saying, yeah, you know, it's funny. I hear people t saying that there's more and more I can just do in Lightroom, and I and I barely go into Photoshop. But every headshot I've ever done, they have flyaway hairs. They have things that you really just can't do in Lightroom. And you go into Photoshop, you keep it, you start with it as a tip and you go through and the tools that, that they have for that, such as the patch tool are, are just very, very uh, handy and really necessary. And, and so Photoshop is not dead. No, not at all. I, I would say Lightroom is for organization it's for stylization of a photo and very minor retouching. Photoshop is for the normal retouching and changing the character of the photo, adding text to the photo. Uh, it's, it's all that kind of more in-depth stuff. And I, I definitely think Photoshop is a worthwhile skill. I also recognize that a good majority of the improved photography audience 
neglects Photoshop because we we love Lightroom. A lot of people get comfortable in Lightroom first. It's easier to work in Lightroom. And then Photoshop is always kind of put on the back burner. And so if you're interested in diving into Photoshop, there are a lot of different ways you can learn it. I mean, just head over to YouTube and you're going to find a ton of tutorials on how to use uh, Photoshop. But if you want to learn it a lot faster and you don't want to bang your head on the table for the next six months because you've missed important steps, uh, go to Improve Photography Plus. Use that two that two week free trial. And we have Photoshop 101 and Photoshop 102 that will walk you in an organized way right through Photoshop. You could be up to speed using it at a competent level in two weeks from now uh, if you if you learn it in a good organized way. All right, yeah, and Jim, yeah. Jim, I you know I found um, that. If, People who are overwhelmed by Photoshop, when you actually figure the tools that you use, you know, we all have there's there's three or four different ways to do a lot of things. But when you find the tools that you like and get comfortable with them, it's it's really not that bad. There's all kinds of other options you can do that you'll have to watch a tutorial on. But the actual tools that you use over and over again, there it's it's not it's, it's something we can all uh, learn pretty quickly. Yep. I totally agree with that. It's, it's, there's, you can spend your whole life and not know everything there is to know about Photoshop. Uh, but you can get competent with it in a couple of weeks if you're learning it well. Uh, the next question comes from Justin Gill, who says he has a 70 Mark II and it has an extra memory card slot, which he has never, ever used. And so why would someone want an extra memory card slot? What do you think? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm probably not the one to ask because one of the ways that people use that is a backup in case your card messes up. And I have had one card in 20 years fail or 16 years in digital fail. So I don't use it for that. I use it when I'm running out of space. But now with my these big 64 gig cards, I, I don't use it. I like the SD cards and um, I think that people use it mostly as a backup when they're worried that the card will fail. Yeah. You know, most people do use it as, as a backup worrying the card will fail. I, I guess a caution on that. Often a card failure is not a problem with the card itself. Sometimes it's the camera that has actually failed and it just wrote that error to the card. Um, so uh, not every time that we see something wrong with the card, does it mean the card was actually bad? Uh, there could be a number of causes for that. And so I don't think we we can rely on just having a second card in your card slot and saying, now I'm good. Uh, you know, I have two cards in here. I can shoot the whole wedding and have it backing up continuously, having it write each picture to both cards and, and I'm set. Well, that would be fine if the card were the only uh, thing that could fail in that system. But there's a common denominator, the camera, that could fail and mess up two cards at once. And so while I do think it's a great practice and very, very handy to have two card slots, and you might as well be writing them to two when you're shooting something mission critical like a wedding, um, it doesn't mean you don't you are all good. It's not a panacea for your problems. When I shoot a wedding... Every like 15 to 20 minutes, I take out the card and I switch to a, a new card. And then as soon as there's a break in the event, I download all the cards to a laptop that I bring with me. And so the very most that I could lose when I'm shooting a wedding is 15 to 20 minutes of coverage. 
Um, you know, when it, when I'm at the reception, I'm not going to switch every 15 minutes. I'm going to, you know, switch two or three times during the whole reception. Uh, but, you know, during the wedding ceremony, during very important parts, when I'm getting the formals of the couple on the wedding day, the group photos that we've just got everybody together for, I'm going to be switching cards pretty regularly to make sure that I don't mess that up. What's kind of your process to make sure you don't mess that up, Stephen? <laughs> you know, I think I've heard this discussion on your show and I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. You run and, fast and loose because you've only had one problem in 25 <laughs> years. I know, you know, and one could go over those. I think a lot of the problems that happen with cards where, where you have that issue might have to do with turning the camera off, pulling your card out, some kind of an interruption on that card while it's writing and not even blaming it on the card. But I'm sure there's people out there that have had horrible stories and I'm just not one of them. But to me, um, pulling out your card and worrying about it halfway through an event and and maybe you forgot to did I load that? Did I not load it to me? One card, leave it in there. I know at the end of I, I had one time where I had two weddings in one day and they were all on one card. And for a second there at the end of the at that day, when I was like putting it in the computer, I'm like, Oh my God, you know, like what, that's a crazy amount of information. And then it pops up. There's that EOS symbol and God bless. And that's been working for me for so far for 16 years, but you don't wear a seatbelt either. Do you? (laughs) Ah, no, you know, (laughs) uh, to me, there's more human error by pulling that card in and out than doing that. I also use two camera bodies. So there there's that, but so far so good, but I get you. You're, you're probably a much more rational in that respect. I, it's the whole attorney thing. The, the risk averse <laughs> is, I mean, most people have a certain aversion to risk. And when you're an attorney, it just like quadruples. It just goes to the insane levels. Well, but, what, the, what, what, but this what, happened what are, to me. Yeah. I screwed this up uh, <laughs> not not so long ago. I photographed a wedding. I It was the reception. Everything was going good. I photographed the whole reception, got some great photos. Right the instant that the bride turns her back, throws the bouquet, I can remember looking through the viewfinder and seeing the photo and think, dang, that was cool. Because uh, I got right, I got the bride kind of her back turned and then the the all the girls, you know, scrambling, trying to grab the flowers out of the air. And like, I, I took the picture, I saw it in the viewfinder I looked, I tilt the camera down to chimp. I press play, look at it, card error. And I lost everything from the reception. Um, And so I I didn't trust the camera anymore. I literally ran around the reception with my cell phone, snapping wildly photos of the cake, photos of everything. People that were there uh, grabbing it in the last seconds because I thought, no, I have to have something from the reception. Um, it can right. happen. Uh, and while it may be very rare, uh, we've all seen the photographers that got sued because they lost mission critical information. And so it's just a, 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 I, I totally get what you're saying about the human error. It's totally there as well. Uh, it's just a, a matter of what kind of risk you want to take on and where you think the mistake is most likely to come. Uh, but but, but uh, Jim, those are some Jim, things you to double, you double your you double your chance of of having a card go bad when you have two cards. 
Uh, how's that? <laughs> I have one card. If it go, you have two cards. One of them, you have a hundred percent, fifty percent more chance of, of 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 a card failing. You have another card that could fail. I, I only we have could one. Could argue the the logic <laughs> of that, but okay. <laughs> All right. Tim Evans asks. Uh, just curious if anyone has stopped purchasing from B and H due to the recent allegations against them. Uh, no, I have not. Uh, so B&H is a popular camera retailer in the United States. I'm not sure how popular they are overseas. Um, and they have had a number of allegations against them with different things. Um, one of them being the, the labor issues that they have saying that they're underplaying, underpaying their, their workers and things like that. Um, what I say is that any business any business, no matter how well and morally it is run, will be sued once it gets large enough. Every single business of size that is going to happen, um, it, it just will. It's just a fact. And so I never worry about about this kind of thing. Um, I read through a lot of the comments uh, of of some of the allegations against them and was very underwhelmed <laughs> as to uh, what they what uh, what of some of the things they were that were alleged against them. I, I guess the thing that I always wonder is I hear somebody that says, you know, I've worked here for 35 years and, and they're not paying me enough and and I keep getting injured on the job. And and I always think. Go find another company to work for. Why have you still worked there for 35 years if it's so horrible? This is a big country. There isn't just one place you can work for. And I understand that some element of that is unfair, uh, but I don't know. I, I, I read through a lot of it and it seemed like uh, an attorney found somebody to sue. So that's that's kind of my thoughts. Do you have any thoughts on that, Stephen? Uh, yeah, well, I, I love getting the boxes. I, 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 the only thing I can say, I do try to um, help the local guys. The a lot of I know Canon. Their prices are exactly the same whether I buy from the camera, my, our local camera store, as they are at B and H. They've kept the prices uh, exactly the same, and so I try to uh, give camera uh, our camera store a uh, uh, some work. But boy, B&H is quick and I call it in one day and the next day I got the box. Uh, it's it's uh, they're they're just very good at it. Their customer service. I've called them and asked them which umbrella to would be best. And they they spend as much time as you want. So I like them. There's other uh, companies as well that do a pretty good job in New York. Uh, yeah, and and there have been a lot of different things that that B and H and every big company has faced. Uh, in addition to the labor disputes and the the lawsuit that came, I guess that was three or four months ago. They're also being sued by the government for uh, discrimination and their hiring practices. And again, all I I like can say here is that when you're a big company, there are a lot of people that are that have a target on your back. And also, there are a lot of hoops to jump through in the business world to get everything right. And uh, once you pass that 500 employee mark, uh, things like uh, government restrictions on on making sure you're hiring um, correct numbers and, and things of, of different races and cultures and men and women and all kinds of things, it can be very difficult to get right. Um, and and so I have more sympathy than, than anything else uh, for B&H. And so... No, I wouldn't even come close to uh, changing my buying habits because of that. 
Having said that, it's rare that I order something from B&H. I almost always get it from Amazon. It's easier, it's faster, and I get better shipping and a better return policy, and they're always open. Anyway, all right, so we, we had some great questions this week come in from, uh, from listeners of Improved Photography. But Stephen, you do some hotel photography, um, uh, photographing for a, a hotel chain. And so tell us a little bit about how you got that gig, what you charge for something like that, and, and what a typical shoot is like. Yeah, it was funny because I was uh, I started as a really a photojournalist and I uh, was totally into people. I was a people photographer and uh, all of a sudden uh, coming in my lap was my brother, who is a uh, architect, started doing hotel work. And uh, so having no skills, I started photographing his his work, his interior work, his architecture I think you could describe every photographer's journey, like whenever they start any kind of photo business, you could start with the sentence, having no skills, I started photographing X, Y, or Z. We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll tell you, that's true because you were talking about the business end of it. And, you know, business to me is, is you have skills, but boy, there is just the luck and the networking and the people that like you that keep you aboard. And, and to me, that's the biggest message I've learned throughout the years. And hotels were, were uh, just like that, where one thing branched off into another. And then I realized while I'm shooting uh, hotels, interiors, that the people interested in these pictures weren't just the, that hotel, but the uh, lamp person, the floor person, the carpet, the TV installation, the hardware there's so much to uh, to the vendors that that was just an amazing offshoot. And I've actually started doing work for just those people. Oh, very so, cool. So, yeah. so what what exactly are you providing them? Like, are they looking for just photos of, of the rooms and the building or are you using every, models in the in some of the photos? What's a typical shoot like? Yeah, every five or six years, almost every hotel, particularly the Marriott brand, but um, all, all hotels will change their interiors. That's the carpet that's really um, nuts to bolts oftentimes. Even the strategy for uh, what attracts you to a hotel. If you notice now when you walk into the lobby, it's not this CD bar in the corner, murky bar with a piano. It's right out in the open. uh, You can put your laptop down. You can get a drink. And by the way, you can order food. So they're keeping you here by changing their hotel strategy. The TVs are now out in in the open in your room. So every five, six years, every hotel changes and spends, oh, 20, 30 million, you know, at least five or six million uh, changing that hotel over. So I come in after that and the decorator, the interior decorator designer uh, uh, would go with me and we go room by room and spend um, three to four days, night and day, uh, working on everything from the bar, gym, lobby, uh, four or five different types of rooms, suites, hall, hallways, and we barely get it done in in four or five days. Really, that's a ton. I never would have guessed that. I would have guessed a you know four or five hour shoot, and and you'd have it nailed. What exactly are they using that many photos for? Because usually when you know you go to buy a, to rent a hotel for the night, it's you know, you look at five or six photos they have of, of a couple different room descriptions in the lobby and, and you're set. Yeah, no, these are, you know, these are 
for the interior decorators. These are for people to show their rooms off, but it's also for the for the decorator for the Marriott. This is a contractual thing that each one uh, puts in their contract when they spend this money to to change their hotel over. They send these pictures to Marriott, and Marriott decides whether it's uh, uh, qualified. They have to qualify to be a Marriott. They have to be approved. So these pictures have to show that this is Marriott worthy, uh, particularly Renaissance brand, uh, so that they they pass. So it's very important that these shots are impressive and correct for what the, what the company's looking for. And what would you charge for something like that? I mean, it's going to be several days. Are you traveling as well? Yeah, travel costs are all extra. Um, it depends on whether I'm shooting for a vendor or shooting directly for the hotel, because I do a lot where I get uh, a certain amount of pay per day, which is somewhere in the $2,000 a day uh, on a good on a good shoot. But we're there on there eight o'clock in the morning and going to bed at one thirty, two o'clock at night. The, the kind of like what you did when you, when you were shooting in uh, Iceland. Yeah, except uh, no 50 mile an hour winds there, huh? <laughs> no, very pleasant uh, with coffee coffee all the time but we're um yeah we're uh shooting uh, all day all night but, but sometimes there's other vendors involved and in that that i reach out to them or we work it out differently with uh when 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 multiple people are interested in the work uh, all everything is paid for obviously hotel rooms are not a problem and uh, <laughs> they you know they're provided a uh, high-res images that they own they have full rights to well, very cool. That's that's uh, definitely a, a unique and interesting interesting angle in photography. What would you say are are some of the some of the tips that you've learned about taking the actual photos um, in the in the venues in the in the hotels and making it look good? Yeah, I think one area that's really uh, changed everything was the digital world. When I shot, I started on film, and for us to get a room correct was uh, with lighting. By the way, I bring a Dynalight system there. And uh, sometimes have to light up a, a ballroom, and uh, then there's just small little rooms that need uh, two or three lights. It just uh, uh, small rooms with finesse. And so what I do now is I I can travel with uh, less equipment and um, and shoot in layers. And so the, the exciting thing for me in uh, hotel photography, which I can apply to. All different. I, I do the same principles with other photography is by putting your camera on a tripod and moving your lights around and shooting one area, lighting that up perfect, bringing the lights over to the other side and lighting that up. If you saw some of my original shoots and how I put it together, it's the lights are in the shot. And it's just really cool how you can take two, three lights and move them around and, and then merge it all into one just unbelievable picture that might have been 10 layers oh very cool well well that's that's definitely an an exciting thing something that you could um it could definitely help a career is to have that kind of contract with a large company kind of business to business type of photography uh because then you'll you know be shooting doing lots and lots of shoots uh, or photographers that you know, have a contract with a, a larger business that they photograph all their employees for the employee directory or the website. Uh, those are great contracts to get because it's a recurring work. It's not the, you know, one and done baby photography that, uh, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, you've always got to keep marketing. I guess even that though, you can, you can keep getting, uh, 
getting them back for the first year pictures and second, etc. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about revisiting photo locations today. Um, something that I have talked with a, f- a few uh, members of Improved Photography Plus about where I'm doing portfolio reviews and I look at a photo that's almost there, you know, got 80% of the way there and just wasn't quite finished. It just didn't quite have all the all the elements in it to to give it that finished look that it could have. And uh, so I've been encouraging people to go back uh, to a photo location where you got a good composition and didn't have the light or whatever it is. Um, and and uh, the the improvements you can make. And I've this year, my photography is about revisiting photo locations. Uh, I revisited Yellowstone that I've already Yellowstone in the winter that I've already shot several times. I revisited Iceland that we talked about on the podcast last week. And in a couple of weeks, I'm revisiting Chicago and revisiting Iceland like this. My schedule for this year is basically redo 2015 and 2014. <laughs> I'm just redoing a lot of photo locations. And so uh, Iceland wasn't as hard because I felt like I'd kind of messed up Iceland the first time I went the photos. Uh, as much as I loved the trip, I didn't feel like I got those amazing photos that I wanted to get my first time in Iceland. And so the second time I, I went there, I, you know, had a mission of of what exactly I wanted to accomplish. Um, Chicago, I feel like I got some great photos in Chicago, but I'm doing some model shoots there, um, doing uh, doing some workshops uh, during the conference, the Out of Chicago conference, which is a great conference, by the way. Um, and so I, I can change that because it's model shoots. It's going to be different every time, but I'm going to China, uh, in, I guess it's about a month from now. And I feel like I nailed China the first time I was there. I got some of my best photos ever, uh, while I was in China. And so I've been thinking about what strategies or things I could do to totally change my approach this time. So Stephen, what are some ideas or or things that have worked for you when you're revisiting a photo location? How do you get back and change the way that you did did it before and and try to get a better photo the second time? You know, I'm still more of a people person when I'm uh, traveling. I find myself doing less nature, but my impression is a lot of you guys uh, are doing the nature thing. And to me, when I see nature pictures, to me, it's about weather and less about the, the nature is good. You get the, you go, you go and you see these amazing scenic scenery. And then to me, it's about getting that, that weather, getting the weather, right. In other words, getting the storm, getting the cloud, getting something in it for me, I always, it's always about people and I'm looking for the people in secondary. I'm looking for the background scene. So uh, people are never the same twice. I have a reflector and a little lighting setup ready to stop anybody in Thailand, Malaysia, wherever I've been uh, and, and just get ready to go up to these people, approach them and manipulate them, use them. <laughs> manipulate people as much as <laughs> and, possible. Yeah, you can see that on my site. That, uh, that's what I love doing. I just love people in most countries are just so approachable with a smile. You know, if you smile and go up to them, I've, I've uh, done that over and over again in just uh, in Spain, Italy. It's just to me, you walk around and look for the people and secondary look, look for that, you know, that backdrop. Yeah, I, that's my approach. That's very good. Yeah, And I think one thing that I'm going to do this time is really try and, and focus less on. I think the last time I was in China, I was so 
uh, surprised or interested in the things that were just different from my home, different from my culture. Uh, and so I focused more on uh, the older woman on the on the street who uh, you know looked like she didn't have much money and she had that that face with all that character because it was so different from what I see in my neighborhood. You know, it's just so different. Somebody with a a dirt floor on this tiny little street in the middle of Dashu, right? Um, and so I I was so interested by that that a lot of my photos focused on that. And so one thing that I'm trying to do this time is to get more personality and. Uh, interesting kind of creative looks um, at this time I go uh, as I photograph the people. So uh, let's say I think celebrity photography does a great job with this. When you take a picture of just a person, you know, you just kind of, you know, let's uh, come in the studio, turn your shoulders 45 degrees, drop that front shoulder, stick your neck out a little bit and smile and pop, right? You're not really trying to capture the essence of the person. You're trying to capture the person, what they look like, and you're trying to make them look good. When you look at celebrity photography, especially go look at Jeremy Cowart's uh, photography portfolio. He does an awesome job at this. Uh, When you look at celebrity photos from Jeremy Cowart or or, uh, many other photographers, the one thing that they do so, so, so well um, is that they capture the real essence of that person you know they they capture them in in just a fun kind of quirky uh, atmosphere they're they're just doing different interesting things as they're trying to uh to get a look out of that person and so that's what i'm going to try and focus on when i when i photograph the people in china this time is doing less of the kind of obvious uh take a look at this this wrinkly uh, older person on a on a poor looking area and this time trying to do something very different and creative with those and so i i guess that's that's going to be kind of the the focus that i that i uh that i put on on this year in china and jim i th- i really think that like i said that the um th- it's amazing how well you can manipulate people um that you don't know with a smile and a camera they're oftentimes just really into it and you show them what you're doing and you can get them to to um, to do whatever you like. And you're right. It's not a pose per se, but it's just something fun and funky and maybe weird that that you come up with. And uh, it's I'm just really surprised how much I've been able to get away with out there. And I, I love doing that. Very cool. Well, in every episode, we like to leave you with a doodad of the week. This is a product or resource that we use and and like. And the one that I would recommend this week is a lapel windscreen. While I was in in, uh, Iceland, I am always trying to do a little video, add little videos in uh, so that I can make YouTube videos for you guys and also new trainings for Improved Photography Plus. And um, and so I often use a Rode SmartLav. This is a a lavalier microphone that plugs into your cell phone uh, and it records really high quality, excellent audio. The problem is I'm often in locations where it's windy. And so if you're trying to add a little bit of video to your uh, photography uh, or you're doing mixed media kind of stuff, then uh, the Rode SmartLav is an excellent tool. But the windscreen that comes with it is not sufficient for really windy conditions. And Nick uh, handed me this very it looked like a small rodent came up and just died on your microphone uh, it's just this really hairy little deal um and uh so i i'm not sure what the brand is or the one that 
that he was using that was cool. Uh, but really, I, I mean, it doesn't have to be a brand kind of thing. We're just looking for one of those really hairy ones uh, for a lapel uh, microphone. Uh, very handy to have so that you can get good, clean audio without the wind whipping into those microphones. So I'm going to link over to the Bronstein WML5 microphone wind muff cover screen lavalier lapel mic. Or just Google dead squirrel. I yes. think you'll, it will it will pop up. Don't also, they look like that? <laughs> yeah, just bring a pocket knife and find a dead squirrel on the road would also work just fine. <laughs> Stephen, what are you recommending this week? Well, as much as I love toys, I love, uh, I'm as geeky about uh, toys, but I figure for my uh, podcast with you, the one contribution that I really recommend is keeping a pad and a pen in your car. Obviously, you can do this on a phone. On a phone, and write down ideas as you drive by them. And fo- that's part of the follow through. But that pad in the keeping something in your face in the car. I get in the car and I look at that pad and go, "Oh, I got to go back to that spot." You pass by these spots and you make these. You come up with an idea and you put it. If you put it down, you tend to follow through with it. That's. And that idea, which, uh, Jim, you said about going back to the same spot is really part of it, that you should go back to these spots and and just kind of work them. It shouldn't be just a random luck thing. There is some uh, sweat to get that. And so I my recommendation is a pad and a pen in your car. Very good. And and uh, I my wife writes everything down with a piece of paper and a pen. Uh, I like to put everything in my notes app on my iPhone and I'm just pulling up uh, uh, right now my my photo ideas note that every time I, I get an idea of just, oh, that's, this would be cool. Uh, I don't even know why it sometimes comes to me different ideas. I'll just uh, just write down some ideas of, of what a, a cool photo idea would be. And I just have that photo ideas note and then uh, when I'm not feeling the inspiration or I'm looking for some new ideas, I'll just pull that up and and uh, you have some some uh, inspiration for a shoot. Well, Stephen, it was great talking with you uh, on this episode of the podcast. Thanks, everybody, yeah. for joining us. And we will see you in another seven days. Bye now.